morning. All right, we are in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. So if you will, head over there, uh, verses 6 and 7. Uh, last week, we were looking at uh, the hope we have because of Christ coming to dwell among us <clears throat> and all that he accomplished among us. Uh, this week, we are learning what sort of peace we have because of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we're just going to read the passage and jump right into it today. Uh, it's just two verses, Isaiah 9, beginning in verse uh, 6 and ending in verse 7, right? Short. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, and with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your plan of salvation and redemptive history. Thank you for bringing us into your family for the rest of eternity. Thank you for giving us the joy of sharing the gospel with others. Thank you for the way that you have loved us and for how you have made us to enjoy loving you. For Lord, apart from your spirit, we simply wouldn't. Lord, help us to understand the peace of Christ this morning, the peace that we have through Christ this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So some words are more difficult to fully grasp than others. We think we have a good understanding of what they are. Uh, peace is one of those words. It's difficult to understand because it's so prevalent within our, our culture. We say it all the time, and, and yet it means so many different things, so many different depths of things. And in general, when we use the word peace, we, we tend to mean not war, right? Like you just hold those against each other. And in some sense, that's absolutely right. You've probably heard of the the Christmas Treaty of, of 1914. How many of you know that one? Number of you, yeah. Uh, World War I had begun, and just a few months earlier, the Allies, uh, mostly the English in this case, and the Germans were battling or fighting a battle. Uh, and the way it was laid out is, is they're in these trenches, and then there's this big open area in between them, uh, and they'd hide out in these trenches, and they were engaged in this deadly battle, actually killing each other. Uh, and so that area in, the in, in between is called no man's land because no one wants to be out there. It's the most dangerous place to be. And, and yet on Christmas Eve in 1914, the German soldiers over there began uh, singing Still Noch, right? Is that a good German sounding um, sound? You like that. You're the only person who likes the sound of German, I think. Oh, Silent Night. Yes, you're right. Silent Night, uh, which nothing ever sounds better in German. I, no offense to Germans. It's just not the most pretty language. Uh, it is the word silent night. Uh, the men on both sides eventually come out of that trench and, and they meet in the middle. Uh, and there's this, this just moment of peace between them. And there they continue to sing together of the birth of Christ, which is just uh, amazing to, to wonder at. Um, and when just a few hours earlier, they're actually killing each other. Uh, they participated in the funerals of each other. They actually play a game of soccer while they're out there. And, and you hear this and you think, what a beautiful story of peace. And yet, as we look at it, we begin to understand this is not the, the, the true and deeper meaning of the Advent. This is not the peace that we're, we're thinking of when Christ comes. 
You see, the following day, the war returned. These guys were killing each other back, you know, went right back at it, killing each other. The the peace we see here is very temporary in this sense. And see, what I, I want you to see today is that when God speaks of peace here in Isaiah, it's something far, far greater, something that is eternal, something so much more significant than what we tend to think of peace in our world. We'll also learn that while peace does mean lack of war, it also means a great deal more. You might know this as well, but the word peace in our passage is from the the Hebrew word, anyone know it? Shalom? Yeah, shalom. Uh, In in Jewish culture, shalom is one of those words that is so prevalent. They use it as a greeting, right? You, You show up at your grandma's house and she says shalom to you. You leave your grandma's house, she also says shalom to you. You can see it's just throwing out there that way. It's, it's a, something that's just spoken to someone. Here's what I want for you. I want peace for you. And that's why it's used as both a greeting and a, and a leaving. leaving. Um, and the concept of peace was such a part of the early church that when Paul writes his letters, uh, every single one of them has a statement of peace within that letter. Usually it's grace and peace to you, and that's the way he begins it. Uh, and, and that's in the Greek equivalent of what is shalom. So Maybe you've noticed, though, in our culture that it's not just Christians, but people of all sorts who are just obsessed with this concept of peace. It's what people want in the world. It's what people dream of when they think, oh, if we could get that, that would be the perfect world. But what we see is they always get it wrong. Uh, I actually Googled, out of just curiosity, songs about peace. And uh, the first thing that came up was this list, 25 songs that are just anthems for peace. Uh, Songs like Why Can't We Be Friends and Marvin Gaye's uh, What's Going On. That's one of the top 25 songs of peace, by the way. Uh, Kenny Chesney's Get Along. That one makes sense. Uh, The number one song listed was All You Need Is Love. Anybody know who sang that? The Beatles. That's right. Uh, Which means based on this list, right, that the anthem of peace in worldly terms is sung by four guys who couldn't even live at peace among themselves. They're so at war with each other that they end up splitting up later in their lives and uh, and never reconciling. So, uh, or how about this? Since 1901, there has been an award that's been given out for the person who has done the most to create or promote or uh, really just keep peace in the world. You know what that one's called? The Nobel Peace Award Prize. Uh, in 1919, right? This is one year ago, 1919. Man, remember 1919? Anyway, uh, it was given to a guy named uh, Abiy Ahmed, the prime minister of Ethiopia. And it was given to him because after his election in 2018, he, he manages to bring this big swi- swiping piece, uh, the enemy nation of Eritrea, which probably is not pronounced wrong, but I'm from Texas, so it doesn't matter. Uh, no one expects me to pronounce nations right, I hope. Uh, and he's being praised for peacemaking. What an amazing job. This man is, is the face of peace in the world one year ago. But this past month, just one year later, he led this, this violent war in a segment of his own people. And I'm not questioning whether he should have or not, given the, the circumstances. But, but even this secular idea of, of peace is, is this one failure after another. Here is the picture of peace in 2019. In 2020, he's killing people. And so this morning, I I want, again, just to help you understand that there is something far greater than our cultural idea of peace. What we see in Isaiah 9 is a promise of peace that is far more significant than anything in the history of the world. Uh, These words of our passage, right, these may be very familiar to you. They're part of Handel's Messiah. They're the part that everyone knows. It's the best part of it. Um, That's an opinion, but also a fact. And while these words here are talking about Jesus, they're also 
not talking about Jesus. And sometimes that's hard to get our heads around. Uh, so let me explain that. I, Isaiah is a prophet, an Old Testament prophet. And we tend to think of a prophet. This is the guy that predicts the future. Um, that's not really the biblical idea of it. Sometimes they do predict the future. Uh, but really it's just as simple as we mentioned a few weeks ago. It is to proclaim God's word. That is what a prophet does. God's word is proclaimed to the people. Um, and so that's his ministry, to speak the word of God. And here's the context of Isaiah's ministry. The, the members, um, the, remember the, the Israelites are all enslaved in Egypt. Not a great time. They're making bricks and then bricks get harder to make. And, and God goes to deliver them and he sends the plagues. You remember the gnats and the flies and the hail and bloody river and all this nasty stuff that no one really wants. Uh, and it ends with the Passover, and during the Passover, that's the way that God actually delivers them out of Egypt, and they escape across the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, uh, and then they wander around in the desert for a little while, and, and then they get to the Promised Land, and God knocks down the walls of Jericho. Uh, Israel is established as this big kingdom, 12 kingdoms altogether, uh, and then the Israelites become dissatisfied with God. We don't like what you're doing. And they decide they want a king, just like all the other nations, right? This is peer pressure in that sense. Just like they have kings, we want kings, uh, a king. And God says that is a terrible idea, and he gives them all the reasons of the terrible idea. And you can go read it, and you're probably going to agree, yeah, that's a terrible idea. Um, and, and yet, like foolish, you know, prideful children, Israel says, yeah, okay, we hear you, but we want a king anyway. And God gives them a king. Um, the kings, right? There's King Saul. He's okay at first, but really he's a pretty crummy guy. Uh, the mostly good King David, uh, then the wise King Solomon, and, and then soon after that, this civil war breaks out. North and south are at war with each other. Israel becomes the name of the north tribes, the southern tribes, Judah, just two of them. And suddenly, God's people in the north and the south each have their own king, and they just, they hate each other. And so here is God's kingdom divided amongst each other. Uh, and, and that's the perfect moment for the Assyrians and the Egyptians, right, who they had escaped about some long time ago, uh, start attacking them again at this point. And this is where Isaiah comes in. All this is to bring you back to this. Isaiah is a prophet in that moment uh, as, these two, as these two people, uh, two parts of Israel are fighting. Um, and, and he is a, a prophet to the southern two tribes. That's who Isaiah is. And he remains a prophet for 50 years. He's the prophet uh, and he pro proclaims the word of the Lord to uh, five different kings. In our text today, he is talking to the second of those five kings. Uh, that's the setup here. Uh, King Ahaz is his name. Ahaz is 20 years old. Think about this. Can you imagine being 20 years old? Uh, 20 years old, you're put in charge, made king of a nation. He ends up ruling for 16 years until he's, someone do the math, Stucky, 36, right? Uh, Ahaz is a nasty king. He basically said, God, I don't need you. I, I want no part of you. I'm going to rule this my own way. I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it. I don't need you at all. And, and that's what he does. And so Isaiah is, is speaking to him, and he's bringing the message of, the, of God to him. And he's saying, Ahaz, right now, this moment, really a long time ago, but this moment, this is a good time for you to repent. And, and the people, they do repent but, but King Ahaz, their leader, does not repent, refuses to repent. And, and so Isaiah, the prophet, starts telling people about this future time. 
and he's telling them things are going to be better. God is not going to abandon you. And, and, and that's when we start to see these clear references to, to God in the, in the text of Isaiah where, where you and I, we're going to read it and we're going to see it, right? Isaiah seven fourteen, God says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, shall, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Right? We, we look at that and we're like, that's Jesus. And then in our text, we start to learn about the, the, this child that's going to be born. And you, you see what it says there in Isaiah 9, right? He's to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then in the next verse, it says that, that um, his rule and his peace is going to last for how long? Forever. Forever. Now, remember the, the context of this statement. Much of this statement comes true with, with King Hezekiah, with the birth of Hezekiah. Um, so if you will, turn over to Hezekiah 3.17 real quick. There's no Hezekiah 3.17. I'm sorry. Someone pulled that prank on me years ago. Um, don't turn over there. There's no book of Hezekiah. It sounds like it. There's not. There is a King Hezekiah. He's a real person in Scripture. And, and he's the king that comes after this, this nasty king Ahaz. Uh, he is the king of the two southern tribes of Judah. And, and so then Israel... Um, the ten northern tribes, right, when we're calling Israel that, uh, attack the two southern tribes, and it all gets really confusing and wars and battles and all this thing. But the important thing to know is that there is actually peace in the land for a period of time. They kind of experience it. And, and I mention that because I, I want you to understand how, how people originally heard this prophecy. Uh, it's kind of like you and I, if you were to tell us something today, they, they, they didn't understand it as clearly as we understand it, right? You, you read Isaiah 7 or heard Isaiah 7, you're like, that's Jesus, and instantly. Uh, they would have been seen it as, uh, seen it partially fulfilled in Hezekiah, but also understood, you know what, he hasn't fully fulfilled this. Some of these statements were about something far greater than what we've seen in, he seen in Hezekiah, as much as they probably appreciated it. Now, we, we have something that the people of Isaiah's time didn't have, and, and that's the New Testament, okay? We're, we're able to read it backwards. It functions like uh, decoder glasses that in my day used to be in cereal boxes. Young people, just it translates things so you can understand it better. Decoder glasses. Um, and so Jesus himself is, is teaching us, in fact, that when we look at the Old Testament, we're to look at it through the, the lens of Jesus, through the lens of the New Testament, um, in fact, Jesus himself, and, and, and in Luke 24, 25 through 27, listen to this, because he's the one who teaches us this. He says, uh, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And listen to this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What Jesus is saying is that, you know, passages like Isaiah 7, like Isaiah 9, all these things we're seeing in the Old Testament, these are ultimately about me. It doesn't mean they weren't about Hezekiah, but they are ultimately about Christ. For instance, I, I, Isaiah says his, his kingdom and his peace will never end. That's not about Hezekiah, as we mentioned, right? He, Hezekiah died and his son Manasseh uh, comes into power. Manasseh's kind of an evil punk. I don't know what nice way to put it. He's just not a good guy. Uh, but in Jesus, Jesus, this prophecy is fulfilled. In fact, 14 times in the book of Matthew, the author says that Jesus is fulfilling something from the prophets. That word fulfilled, you know what that means? To, to take something that's uh, empty or, or what's half full, right? That's how an optimist would see it or what is half empty according to a, a pessimist slash realist uh, and then fill it up all the way. In fact, for the first time ever, I've got a visual aid for you here. 
half-filled, right? That's Hezekiah. He's partially fulfilling the word of the Lord. And then when it gets filled, I shouldn't do this over my Bible, uh, all the way to the very top, right? This is all the way, fulfilled completely. That's where they, all these prophecies are going to be. I've set myself up here. I've got to take a sip. Oh, that's nice. Okay, it's just water, Stucky. Okay, so it's about fulfilling fully, completely. It's about absolute completion. And, and, and so what Isaiah prophesies in our text it is made partially complete in King Hezekiah, but it's made fully complete only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our passage, we see these four names, right, that describe Jesus long before his birth. He's called a wonderful counselor because his wisdom is perfect. He's called a mighty God, uh, meaning that he rules with this, this all-powerful unstoppable power. He's called everlasting father because he rules with fatherly care. He's called the prince of peace. And, and, and that's our main focus today is that one phrase there, the prince of peace. And so then how is Jesus the ultimate fulfillment all the way to the brim of the cup fulfillment of this prophecy? How, how is Jesus the prince of peace and how will he bring never ending peace as verse 7 states? Now as Adam and Eve were created, uh, they were created at peace with God. Right? That's, that's where they are. But since the fall, since the first sin, uh, we do not come into the world at peace with God. That's just not the neutral stance that we're at. We are born sinful. We are born selfish. You look at children, you don't have to wonder, like, I wonder if this one's going to grow up and sin someday. It's, it's no mystery. It doesn't take long for you to figure it out. Uh, we are, as Romans 8, 7 says, we are hostile towards God. Enemies, right? Or as Romans 5, 10 puts it, we are, in our natural state, we are enemies of God, which is the exact opposite we've been seeing, right, as, as regarding what peace with God is. And here's the thing, to be an enemy of God is a terrifying thing. This is a difficult concept to get our minds around just how badly we need to be at peace with God because most people just assume all the time we are at peace. Now, any illustration of this will, will fall short uh, because there's nothing quite like being an enemy of God. Uh, the holy creator of the universe. And, and while some of you uh, have heard this story, I'm, I'm going to tell it again because I, I can't think of a better illustration in my mind anyway as I thought about it this week. And, and so I'm just going to tell it again. If you've heard it before, you've heard it. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, there was this one guy who was huge. His name was Donnie Guidry. He was on the other side of puberty. He was uh, the absolute juggernaut of our junior high, and he was mean. I didn't know him very well, and in the last week of school, while talking to some guys, I'm just talking about him, and, and I make a, a reference to him uh, that really was an offense against his, his Italian heritage, of which he was very proud of. Um, it, it got back to him. It always gets back to him, and, and he was furious because of my iniquity, and because of my iniquity, I was instantly this enemy of Donnie Guidry, and that was not a safe place to be in, in sixth grade in, in Dory Intermediate. Uh, that last week of my sixth grade year, I was so afraid to go down the hallways. I'd peek around the corners and looking for him, thinking, how do I get to my next class? Uh, I began to get hall passes from my teacher so I could leave early, you know, I'd pretend to go to the restroom and actually go wait outside the next door to get in. Uh, I would uh, just constantly be scanning crowds whenever I'd be forced to be out in them and looking for him. And the last day of school, I show up and people start telling me, hey, Donnie brought a roll of pennies and brass knuckles. He's going to kill you. And they all thought this was pretty entertaining. Like, man, I cannot wait for him to kill you. Uh, 
Where does a sixth grader in 1991 get brass knuckles? I don't know. I know he really had them, though. I remember looking down from a balcony, and he was admiring them and showing them to someone, and, and the plan was to punch me with them. Uh, I was so anxious that day, and somehow I had managed to avoid him. I get to the summer, and the whole summer, this is on the back of my mind. Every time I, I, I'm not distracted by something else, it's just I have to return to school where Donnie Gendry's going to kill me um, because I am the enemy of the biggest, most dangerous guy in school. I spent the summer with my aunt in Arkansas, and I thought maybe I can just stay here for school. That was no longer an option. I could not do that. Uh, and so anyway, the seventh grade, the first day of school comes around. I'm so anxious. I think I might throw up, uh, and I just know I am a dead man. And my only hope is maybe Donnie Goodry died over the summer, uh, transferred, something of that nature. Maybe he won't be in any of my classes. So I tiptoe around all day long. Finally, I get to the last day of class. The bell rings, and he's not in my class. Hallelujah. Okay. And then I even start to think, I haven't even seen him all day. I haven't heard his name. Maybe he did transfer. Maybe, he, maybe he's left somehow. Uh, something of that nature. And, and then five minutes after the bell, the door opens. This big, huge swing open of the door. And there's Donnie Guidry standing there. Uh, and my heart just sank. It's weird. Even at this age, I can still kind of feel the feeling of that. My heart sank. He scans the room for a seat. There are two or three options. And, and then we make this, this eye contact. And I, he gives me this eerie smile. And I just remember looking down, just swallowing in fear at that moment. And he walks over and he sits in the seat right next to me. He sits down. I sideways glance at him. Uh, and he looks at me and he just says, hey, what's up? Uh, I not in a million years expected it to go that way. And, and I just begin, Donnie, I am so sorry. I did not, like, I'm just trying to explain myself as fast as possible. And he says, it's fine. We're good. And, and, and in that moment, I just, relief was, was so great. I emotionally just wanted to cry at that moment because all summer long, my, my aunts and my friends have been telling me, just relax, you'll be fine. You know, no one ever kills someone like this. Uh, none of that brought peace. It just didn't. Because it didn't change the fact that I was still an enemy of Donnie Guidry. The only thing that ever brought about any, any relief and peace was the moment that I was no longer his enemy. When I was at peace with him. Listen, because of our sinful hearts, because of our thoughts, our deeds, we are enemies of God from birth. And that is not a safe place to be, but it is a terrifying reality. Our, our only hope then is to find peace with God. And as Dan Ortlund points out in his book, Gentle and Lowly, God is infinitely compassionate and infinitely ready to forgive. That's the significance of Advent. That Jesus was born in human flesh so that we can be at peace with our Creator, our, our holy God. And how does Jesus accomplish this? Jesus foretells that, or Isaiah foretells exactly how Jesus will do this in Isaiah 53, 5, right? Again, reading it through the lens of the New Testament, we hear it where he says, he was pierced for our transgressions, sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, again, sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That's the picture of the cross where Jesus secures for all who have faith in him real and lasting peace. Ephesians 2.13 explains this a bit further. When Paul there writes, but now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off, he's talking about Gentiles, anyone non-Jew, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. 
And then a few verses later, Paul says, Jesus has made peace by reconciling us to God through the cross so that the hostility between God and you is removed. Jesus not only made peace possible, Jesus accomplishes it for us. Listen, through the gift of faith, we have received peace with God. We are made at peace with God. That's the prophecy in our text today, and that's the gloriously redemptive message that is so clearly stated in Romans 5.1, which says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see it all throughout the New Testament where it keeps pointing back to this. So you understand this. If you're not at peace with God today, I want you to know that you can have peace with God. You can let go of that debilitating fear of death, fear of judgment that lingers in your mind on those dark nights when you cannot seem to find sleep. And, and, and for you who do trust in Jesus, let this set in. I don't know if we return to this and remember it often enough that we are at peace with God and what that means. You are not an enemy of God. That's a wonderful reality. There is truly nothing more freeing than being at peace with our holy God. When our faith is in Christ, we know that not only are we no longer enemies of God, but God has adopted us as our loving Father. He has secured for us an eternal home that will never be taken away. And while we continue to live in a world full of hostility, when, when, when Jesus comes again and his kingdom is fully established... What we are going to live in a world where there is no sin, there is no hostility, only peace forever and ever and ever and ever. When I experienced the peace of Donnie Guidry in the seventh grade, the first thing I did was just let out this, this sigh of relief. I, he probably even heard it. There's the emotional weight that melted off my back. I, I felt lighter. I could breathe deep again. That's what coming what the coming of Christ to redeem his people does for us on an infinitely higher level and, and listen this has day-to-day -day implications as well one, one thing that I have learned about within this covenant community over the past seven plus years is that many of us are anxious people to some level or another we're, we're stressed out about work we are worried about grades we're anxious about the souls of those we love and we don't see them coming to faith we are stressed by parenting and all the new new stages of parenting we're afraid of the future whether that's the virus or the the economy or the growing depravity of our culture and what that means for the the world our kids will grow up in it in some sense we including myself we, we haven't rested in the peace of God like we should like we can and, and I say this to remind you yes our, our concerns are real but you are at peace with your creator if your faith is in Christ you are at peace with God. You are loved by God. That is why Jesus came. That is why Jesus is coming again for us. In a world where we feel so much unrest, and in Christ we can have real and genuine rest. Okay, so the story of the Christmas treaty in 1914, it's, a, it's intriguing, right? But it's temporary. Last year's peace award winner you know it's temporary it lasted one evening the the peace that Jesus gives us that with God it will last for all of eternity and that's the basis of all of the other peace in our life we, we forgive others uh, for the sins that they've actually committed against us because we have been forgiven uh, of the sins against a great and holy God we have peace with others because we dwell at peace with God e even in our liturgy I don't know if you notice this all um 
it, a lot of people, it's either your favorite or least favorite part, depending upon your extrovert, introvert, but the, the passing of the peace in the service, and some people think, oh, it's a time of greeting. That's what it's often referred to, but it's not a time of greeting, although you're welcome to go greet people. It's the passing of the peace. It's this time in our liturgy that is intentionally after we've already confessed our sin. It's intentionally after we've already affirmed the, uh, the assurance that our, our, our sins are forgiven in Christ. Those are the things right before that unintentionally so you understand now we're at peace with others because of the peace we have with Christ. And this is because, you know, being at peace with God is what facilitates all other peace. And so then church... Let's this week remember that the God of the universe, your creator, has made peace with you through the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that. Exhale and feel the weight of the world dissolve, all because of what Christ has accomplished for you. And finally, I I do want to just close with the words of our Savior himself from John 14, 27, Jesus our Lord says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let us pray. Father, if there are any here today who remain your enemy, we thank you that they're here today. We ask that you'd let them feel the weight of that on their souls. Let them feel the fear that comes with that. And Lord, draw them to yourself. Open their eyes that they may see with eyes of faith the glorious gospel that Jesus is a mighty Savior. Give us all the one thing we really need this Christmas. Faith in Christ. Rest in Christ. Thank you for the peace you give. The peace that exists in a kingdom that has no end. Peace that gives us a place in your presence for all of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.